everyone with an interest in NASH or more broadly fatty liver disease surfs up double. We're bringing you a special interview with Louise Campbell as an add-on to episode 41. Although they comment that they've brought all stakeholders to the table, there was no patient stakeholders. There was no other allied professionals. It's nice that we're bringing the collaboration together, but we do need to move it into the allied professionals, dietetics. Everybody who's a stakeholder should be at that table now to write those pathways. Sounds odd that we should be doing an interview, given that Louise is a part of virtually every podcast we've done since episode three. But she was not available on Monday. And this is a subject where I think she has a unique point of view, even having had Tony Bill and Andrew Scott on the episode. So Louise is good enough to make some time on her busy Friday afternoon from reading the football dailies to come join us. And those of you who don't know, we scheduled to talk 20 minutes ago. We spent the entire 20 minutes talking football. That will surprise nobody. And um, <laughs> Louise, how's your Friday afternoon going? Friday afternoon is going very well. It stopped raining and a sunny evening. So let's hope the weekend continues that way. Excellent. Do you have anything good on for the weekend? No, I'm vaccinating. We're trying to get the younger people in and they've been doing a good job. To be fair, such diversity ethnicities coming in now, particularly after working hours. So they're doing their bit to try and get their vaccines. And if we were doing it less than eight weeks apart, then they'd all be there as well because we're turning those ones around at the moment. But they're coming back, which is great. That's excellent. With that, let's just dive into the article itself. What we're going to do for audience is talk a little bit about the article and then a little bit about the podcast, the episode. So let's talk about the article. What was the one thing you found most striking about it? The one thing I found striking was the actual level now of collaboration between the disciplines. I think we've asked for that for years and we're starting to see that movement together to be able to deal with the common condition, which is obviously the liver and the liver diabetes connection. That to me was really good to see those connections. I wasn't particularly impressed by the level of knowledge in background, as I think was mentioned on the podcast itself or certainly the recording I listened to in the endocrinology field. I think that needs to go up a notch. Generally, Ken summed it up. It wasn't rocket science. Nothing was unexpected. But the actual fact that these teams are now coming together means that we might break through the glass ceiling of siloed health because siloed health is expensive health and it's not patient-centric. So that's what really struck me about this piece is that moving forward, that dialogue between the teams. I, I agree. And I, I think the podcast we said that as well. In, in retrospect, thinking about it later, I was struck also by the idea that it was the AGA that convened this, you know, because I don't think the AGA is being these folks people for hepatology, although gastro and HEP are closely related. And a lot of the, the key organizations, they brought in all the key diabetes organizations. I haven't figured out what to make of that. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's interesting. There's a, a recent article or article out this week on the UK's position in liver disease. And one of the things that was commented there that where guidelines were being followed, they weren't the easel guidelines and they weren't the ASL guidelines. And a lot of them weren't nice guidelines. They were the British Society of Gastroenterology. So where a, an abnormal liver function test was being followed in a guideline, it was the BSG guidelines. So gastro seems to be the one that people default to both sides of the pond. I think we've yet to see on that, how that'll work out. What would you have liked to see in the paper that you didn't see there? Um, I think for me, what I didn't see in there, although they comment that they've brought all stakeholders to the table, there was no patient stakeholders. There was no other allied professionals, so particularly nursing and from the Jeff Lazarus, Jean Schattenberg discussion from the week before, their models were very, and their care models were very nursing focused, where they picked excellent models, seven of them, I think, with five of them from the UK, everything involved a nurse. And I certainly know that there was very little, if anything, that went, would go through 
our area at Imperial or any of the previous areas I've worked with that senior nurse being directly involved in those pathway plans and patient views taken into consideration. It was a very medical paper and a medical review of guidelines in the way that they want to see it. But we're moving beyond that. It's nice that we're bringing the collaboration together, but we do need to move it into the allied professionals, dietetics. Everybody who's a stakeholder should be at that table now to write those pathways because siloed health is a particular medical model whereby we don't move out of our particular disease portfolio. We don't look at the other akin. Vlad said that when Donna was saying, I don't mind who kills me as long as I'm dead. I'm dead. So everybody looks after me as the patient. So I certainly would have liked to have seen more practical solutions rather than just purely focused on guidelines. I was in a conversation this earlier today about this set of issues. If you recall, one of the things Stephen talks about in the podcast a lot for the states is the primary care is a 15-minute visit and an awful lot of ground has to get covered. So the idea that they're going to do something new is unlikely. In the states right now, the longer visits and the more personal care fall to two categories, physician assistants and nurse practitioners. Uh, And neither of those were covered specifically by those organizations either. So I agree with you. It it felt a couple of weeks earlier, you described healthcare as paternalistic. Hmm. In some ways, this this paper felt a little bit that way. At at the end of the day, a lot of the work is going to get done by, as you say, dietitians and and nurses or in states at PANP. And those folks weren't necessarily at the table. Uh, And I think that's true. Most of the times that a nurse will sit with a patient, they'll get a completely different response from a patient than a physician will. A lot of patients do sugarcoat it. Yes, doctor, I'm fine, doctor. And then the minute the doctor leaves the room, they tell a different story. So you can actually get more to the importance. But I think towards the end of the article, they stress this multidisciplinary approach and the coordinated care pathways. It was just a bit at the end rather than actually that integration and that particular depth that I would have liked to see within the article. It was fairly brief and it was trying to review and summarise throughout the world. And we all know there are different models of care throughout the world, whether it's Medicare, whether it's National Health Service, whether it's a payer, private. There are different ways to do the systems. We're all struggling with the barriers between the disciplines. So the strength of this piece was bringing those disciplines together from primary care, endocrinology and gastro liver. I agree with you. I think in, in terms of the paper, though, that was the thing that you would we would have liked to have seen is that they had gone beyond simply if you will, they went horizontal across specialties, but they didn't go vertical across provider types. They certainly didn't, I think, touch patients. One of the strengths of that depth of allied professionals is you tend to get a lot more crosstalk between allied professionals than speciality physicians. And maybe that's because they coordinate the care. The majority of primary care is coordinated for a patient through the nurse within that practice and that surgery because they pull all of the other areas together. So that is part of the strength. So getting that view would have been, and, and will be certainly vital in the implementation of any guidelines and anything that we can produce together because they've got to be patient-centric now. They've really got to be multidisciplinary. We can no longer really look at silo health. Silo health is causing mortality in each of the individual specialities because if we look at liver disease, obviously being silo, if we look at it, our mortalities and cause mortalities are cardiovascular disease. But we try to get a cardiac physician involved. Cardiac patients can die of liver disease. Diabetes patients are dying of liver cancer because we're not looking. And Ken made that particular point of seeing patients and just fibre scanning and getting that instant information to be able to look more deeply into what the condition is. So it's a good risk assessment. It's quick and it's it's available in some clinics. It should realistically be available in all. But it was interesting to see the, as I said before, the lack of knowledge. Is that lack of knowledge? Is that lack of awareness? 
Is that that we just don't think about it in endocrinology? It's more than diabetes? I, I, I don't know. I don't think the questionnaire got to the crux of where that lack of knowledge comes. But what was reassuring was that I think it was 80 or 90% of the physicians felt they needed more education. So I don't think anybody felt they knew enough, which is always reassuring that because you identify that you don't know so that you're willing to learn. And I think that's a really key outcome. By the way, my sense of the questionnaire was that it was a fairly quick high level survey, not necessarily designed to find out where people didn't didn't get information from. If that was in there, it certainly wasn't in what they reported. I wasn't surprised per se, but I was struck that the endo numbers were not significantly different than the primary care numbers. The thing I wondered about, frankly, is because the gastros and the heps were lumped in together, if you took gastros who did not treat the liver apart from the gastro hep packet, how different would that have been from the endos or the PCPs? We don't know. We don't We don't have the data. Uh, no. Maybe they'll run that analysis at some point. I, I was struck by Ken's story about the two patients with fatty liver both having cirrhosis on fiber scan in his clinic that afternoon. And in my mind, I thought about your focus on wellness and wondered how in this model, in clinical care pathway, I guess wellness is what happens before you ever get to the clinical care pathway, yeah? Yeah, and they do a very nice diagram of the care model. Now, I think that is traditional. It's medical. Remember, we're talking medical. So we have to wait for people to be diagnosed to get on any pathway in any part of the world. And the fact that we focus on liver function tests to guide people, that's probably only three out of seven people that are going to be picked up. There's a statistic in this article that only six out of 100 people were nettled even though they've got it. That will probably, it's the wake-up call, that we're trying to assess an organ that tries to make itself perfect every day all of the time with something that's about imperfect. But moving it forward, for people to turn around, and uh, it did make me laugh when Ken said that they will primary care, but they still say that they never see cirrhosis in their clinic. I did make a particular comment, which I won't say on screen, but people really do need a slap sometimes because you see it all of the time. They may not look cirrhotic. The same as they don't look like liver patients. So we do need to get more information. Let me turn that phrase, by the way, because that's completely accurate. They never see cirrhosis in their clinic. Now, what they didn't say, although this is how they're interpreting it, is they never see patients with cirrhosis in their clinic. Yes. And the problem, in fact, is exactly as you say, the reason they need a slap is because they assume that if they don't look for cirrhosis, therefore it isn't there and therefore they never see a patient with cirrhosis. And that's not right. But that's the whole premise behind looking for liver disease by senior managers, healthcare, politicians. If we don't look, it's not there. Therefore, we don't have to spend the money on it. However, that money we're spending anyway because we're not looking and we're spending twice as much with end-stage cirrhosis as expensive liver transplantation is cirrhosis. The model that they showed is very, very familiar, that we're looking at FIB4, we're looking at the blood tests first, and then we're looking for higher-risk patients to then go for transient elastography and other mechanisms. How about you flip it on its head? So part of your clinic and what was very, very prominent in the discussion was ask your doctor, tell your doctor to talk to you about liver disease, tell your doctor you want more information, tell your doctor to screen you. If you don't know that information to start with, how do you tell your doctor? So with Towers and Health, the premise is I'm going to give you that information. I'm going to get you to rock up at your doctor already with your fibro scan to say, here's my fibro scan. It's normal and it doesn't show any problems, but you've got a baseline normal for somebody who may go on to get abnormal. So you've got a baseline, but they've already rocked up ahead of this pathway. So the next test is then fit for. If we get people as part of wellness and lifestyle to undertake fibroscans and non-invasive tests, 
they present to you at the right time mm-hmm. for you to do something. So we've already jumped ahead of the pathway. We then serially do the blood tests. It becomes a lifestyle. And the majority of patients that I see have more f- have excess fat. They don't have NASH or they've got no indication of NASH. So it's about lifestyle modification, which again was very key in this article. Most of this can be managed by primary care. Just give them the heads up. Give them more information. But in the States, if primary care can't squeeze that into their 15-minute visit where they've got to check nine boxes, that's when we go back to dietitians and physician assistants, nurse practitioners, senior nurses in the British system, affiliated professionals, if you will, and people with more time and where caring art is more a part of the job. Absolutely. And if I was a, a diabetic nurse, you know, primary care practice, co- coordinating somebody's diabetes care, and those patients came in and said, oh, I've managed to get my fiber scan, blah, blah, blah. Here it is. You can now monitor, because we know from the data, the fiber scan and other tests are very good at monitoring over time, any reduction, any improvement in lifestyle. And they're very engaging to patients. So all we're doing with the wellness is actually trying to place it above and below. So those who get it before give primary care physicians more information. It stimulates that discussion. And they're also more in tune with their own health and they're outside the medical world. So they get into it in a different way. So it's less paternalistic. It's more, well, you're helping guide me. This is no different to 20 years ago. Patients didn't do their own blood pressure. Now everybody can buy a blood pressure machine. It's no different to home diabetes kits that people could do. So we there's a lot of discussion and we've had one here several times in the context of moving out to patient controlled, what your technology, your watches can tell you, what all sorts of things can tell you. So cardiac, my husband has one, he puts his thumbs on and puts on his knee and he could take him in his cardiac rhythm. <laughs> Things people do. Amazing, yeah. As I'm listening to you, let me tell you what I'm hearing. This isn't new, it's just repackaged. Mm -hmm. Part of the paradigm shift, a word I hate to use, from illness to wellness, is that patients not only become about diet and exercise, but they actually become about self-monitoring of system. Yeah, they're doing it every day on their Fitbit. Look, my, my Garmin actually gives me a body battery rating from 1 to 100 on how fatigued am I versus operating at full strength. Mm-hmm. And then some other things around it. The thing, though, is when you talk about blood pressure and home diabetes, that's self-management of an illness. Not necessarily. A lot of people buy blood pressure machines okay, because they fair. can. <laughs> that's fair. Diabetes would be a management of an illness. Blood pressure might not be, mm-hmm. right? For liver, given that people aren't going to put fiber scan machines in their homes... Do we have the tools for people to self-manage their liver testing today if, say, they can't get a hold of a Taoism health truck, which means, for example, they're not in the U.S.? I don't know. There's a lot of people who take their blood test results from their physicians and do their own um, Excel spreadsheets of them. There's yeah, lots I, of people who monitor their own health in lots of ways. And certainly in the U.K., they get a copy of every letter that's written. They're involved in everything. So they get all of the results. Some will be interested. Some don't want to know. It's the spreadsheets that are interesting to me. It's funny you mentioned I had a friend who sent me a note about a month ago saying, I was reading and I think my ACLT ratio has been consistently high for the last two years. You know something about fatty liver. Can you ask one of your friends if I have a problem? And he had been plotting all of his blood work. When it goes red, when it goes green, when... There's a lot of people very interested in their health, but they're still unaware. You go down to the gym and talk to people about their health. They don't know about their liver. Uh, They're focused. And I know a lot of gym junkies who eat a lot of sugar. Uh, So not necessarily as good on the inside as they think they are, or they look on the outside. So, But then again, I know I look at my liver health with fibrous. I have the toys. I know consultant transplant surgeons who use fibrous cam. So if we can use it to help our health, why can't the public? It is all about the quality of that information. This is certainly not suggesting everybody goes out and buys a fibrous cam machine 
seen in news is it? It's got to be very, very well. It, here in the UK, it's a regulated activity. So you've got to, it's all about quality and the way you care and the, and the discussion with people. That's something that we've driven into. So therefore, getting that uh, regulatory standing has been important because I think for me, it is about protection. It is about information. It's about ensuring that person gets the right information and directed to the physician. This is certainly not that everybody rocks up and just gets a fibre scan and goes away. Um, fibre scan second step, right, in most of the screening process. It is most of the screening because you just, nobody's it currently, as we are, can place it before. But if people can't place it before because they don't have a thousand truck in the neighborhood, if we teach them what to do with their simple blood work on the spreadsheets that they're making anyway, absolutely, then they should be, and, and maybe put one or two more tests in, right? Hmm. You know, one of the problems with liver enzymes is 75% of the people with bad livers have normal enzymes. We lose a lot. Absolutely. Of Donna was correct. Tape measure. Simple things. Um, because I think what was key in this article, the questionnaire, did it ask about lifestyle advice? But very few people were taking that as their primary option. They were looking for medication. They were looking for other solutions. So that's about pharma rather than the simple solutions are often the best and the least costly. Now, do you have that in the, in the UK also? In the States, people frequently go to doctors looking for medication. So if the doctor takes a look at the patient and says, all you need to do is this, 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 and this, and it doesn't have a drug, the patient is disappointed. So one of the reasons, in fact, I think that antibiotic overuse developed in the US to the degree that it did. If Patient goes, patient doesn't get an antibiotic, patient thinks, well, the doctor's not treating my infection. I think, uh, yes, I come across a, a fair amount. Oh, there'll be a pill for it. You could eat two spoonfuls less on a plate. Uh, no, I like my food. Yes, but you would like to see your children grow up, wouldn't you? <laughs> You can, you can start somewhere. But those pills are going to come with side effects. Yeah, but I can eat as what I'm like. At least is it. People still want to eat and eat and eat for the, those who are affected by the diet. But it's the information. It's, it's that general discussion. But very few people think it's as easy as it can be to just eat slightly more, but monitoring it. And you're right, bringing AST, ALTs down, doing all of those and giving information. A lot of people don't want blood tests, though. They don't want things stuck in their arms. I have seen more people faint and have syncope attacks in the last six months than I've ever come across in my life. <laughs> Are those, the minute are those, they get near a needle, I tell you. <laughs> are those people with disease or people back at wellness and illness, right? These are people avoiding disease. These are people having a vaccination. And it's usually okay. the boys. <laughs> It's a f that's odd. I thought these vaccinations were some of the easiest vaccinations. I've traveled to the third world, so I've had to have all these, you know, kind of funky vaccines that you don't get if you don't have to travel to the third world. And some of those are different needle gauges and all that stuff. This was the easiest vaccine. I mean, just didn't feel it. Absolutely. I was the same. There are things people will choose to have or not choose to have, it, but there's a lot of pressure and a lot of squeezing now going on. There. But when I was listening to the tape, there was Stephen was saying that the beauty of it all, the tests, the negative, the predictive so that was great but in fact he was keeping it very simple if you can exclude those that don't need further workup and that's where wellness comes in if you don't need that workup you can be removed but by finding them you can find the ones that may need workup or may just need a bit more investigation so that for me that whole sentence that he puts in there it could be a light bulb moment liver disease could be easy to look for so rule out the 80% that don't have it. If you look at the recent discussion we had in relation to Tracy Simon's article about simple steatosis kills, how can we actually know now? And 
any cardiac study or any of the other studies, because the guys discussed it on Monday in the context that most people exclude liver disease, but they don't because they don't look for liver disease. So they only exclude what's been formally diagnosed, which was very little. So how much liver disease is really impacting any cardiac study, any diabetes study? In the clinical trials, they're excluding patients with cirrhosis. In the practice, they're excluding cirrhosis, but they never see it because they're not looking for it. Yeah. And they're certainly not looking for simple steatosis. Kathleen Corey discussed that really well at Arzold, and I've commented on this a couple of times, where a significant portion of patients were just absolutely caught on their CT scans as having fatty liver. So they followed them independently as part of the study rather than exclude them purely because they had full liver scans. And they went on 75% increased risk of first cardiac event. And that was simple steatosis. Should we be excluding liver disease or ruling it in to any of these studies? But we can't do it on a liver test. We can't do it on a chest x-ray. We can't do it on an ECG. So we do have to be saying that liver disease, all studies should be ruling in or out liver disease in a real positive way, not just by something that's really not going to work. I wonder about those power calculations on sample if you've got to have enough liver disease in there. 104 of the global population, how can you rule it out? We should talk sometime on an episode about how should liver disease be managed in clinical trials and not just liver Mm -hmm. clinical trials. What is the impact of liver disease in clinical trials when it's not looked for? We will find that liver disease has played a significant role. Maybe those, some of those cardiac events weren't, for example. But Stephen's light bulb moment is, it really is keep it simple, stupid, which he uses a lot. It drops the cost if you can rule out the people who don't need to be looked after. But that means you screen everybody because what right. you do is remove the 80% who don't need to be in the liver pathway, but then you can actually target them for their cardiac pathways, their diabetes pathways. So this is this breaking of the siloed health. It's becoming person-centric and doing that review. So he was fairly light bulb moment, keep it simple, stupid, just rule out everybody who doesn't need it. Well, but isn't that generally the first step in triage is rule out? You don't rule out liver disease. In triage, the first rule is who needs nothing. Now, if we're not looking for liver disease, then we might decide they need nothing and be wrong. But all Stephen is doing is taking triage to to its logical extension, which is treat liver the same way you treat anything else. First, figure out if you need to do anything. Don't assume. Yeah, don't assume, rule it out. When I worked in ITU, we did an organ handover. We'd start with neurology, cardiac... And you'd work out. So you, we did a, a comprehensive handover. Um, but if you exclude one of the major organs in your handover, you're potentially failing to detail something. So I think in your triage, maybe more needs to be paid. But GPs and primary care physicians, as Stephen and Ken quite rightly said, and all of the others, they only get 15 minutes. They don't get a lot of time. And what doesn't look nice on the surface is very difficult for them. We just need to use these tools better to help make their job easier, which makes the diagnosis or the location of poor liver health. Is it liver disease now or is it poor liver health that leads to other diseases, including liver disease? I look for poor liver health. I don't look for disease. I look for poor liver health that tells me that there's a risk of something. So is fatty liver poor liver health? I think NAFL is, uh, and NAFL is, is, is poor liver health. And I think Nash any fat in the liver is poor liver health. And then NASH is obviously disease, hepatitis. Louise, thanks. This has been great. Anything else you want to comment on from the article? No, I think I totally agreed with everybody on education, 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 bringing it earlier in the timeline into primary school and wellness education after a pandemic where poor health has been generally the biggest biggest precursor means that bringing it and just making sure everybody gets it. They covered all of the bases and they did it really well. So I enjoyed listening to it and it did make me giggle. 
And now, back to Roger. That concludes today's interview with Louise Campbell. Hope you enjoyed it. Starting tomorrow, we will be releasing three conversations that will incorporate Louise's comments into the actual discussions where appropriate. Love to have you listen. Love to get your feedback on how well that works. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. As Roger said, we are seeking your feedback on what you like about this interview format, what you don't like, or what we could improve. Please send your comments to questions at surfingnash.com or on the LinkedIn or Facebook discussion pages, and we will review and respond. Thanks for listening.